Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. In seconds, we'll hear from John Clegg on the economic origins of mass incarceration. And then we'll hear from Tobita Chow and Jack Werner on the U.S.-China trade war. First, mass incarceration. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow has achieved canonical status in explaining its origins in a phantasmic war on drugs, part of a racist agenda driven by reactionary politicians looking for the votes of bigots. There are some problems with this analysis, starting with the facts that only a small share of people in prison are there for drug offenses, and there really was a rise in serious crime from the 1960s onward. This being the U.S., race did play a major role, but Alexander's version misses some crucial parts of the story. Here's John Clegg, co-author with Adonar Usmani, of The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration in the fall 2019 issue of Catalyst. Clegg is a collegiate assistant professor in the social sciences at the University of Chicago. John Clegg. We have a conventional understanding of, or at least uh, on the left, there's a conventional understanding of how the United States ended up with so many prisoners and such a giant carceral machine. Michelle Alexander now has sort of a, a role as the canonical author of that story. What is that story and uh, what issue do you have with it? Alexander's story, which, as you mentioned, has kind of become the canonical story, both in, in the popular and the scholarly literature, relies on a, a change that occurred in the 1960s. I mean, any attempt to explain mass incarceration has to begin in the 1960s and 70s, because that's when incarceration rates began to rise. And her story begins with a Republican political strategy, sometimes referred to as the Southern strategy, to appropriate votes from the Democratic Party, specifically from Southern whites who were, uh, were aggrieved by uh, civil rights movement victories in the 60s. And they're essentially appealing to um, essentially racist Southern white vote um, with a law and order policy that's really a dog whistle politics that is identifying and criminalizing uh, African-Americans and seeing the criminalization of black and brown life as the, the, the strategy that these law and order politicians in the 70s are implementing under the aegis of the so-called war on drugs. You know, Nixon announces the war on drugs in the early 70s, and very soon many politicians are, are adopting the same language. And the idea is that the, that filters down through the criminal justice system, i.e. through prosecutors, judges, uh, state legislatures, turning what would have been misdemeanor offenses into felonies, increasing sentence lengths, uh, reducing parole, all of these key political changes that are, are argued led to an increase in incarceration. The story is essentially a, a political one, mostly at the federal level, as Republican uh, actors at the federal level seek a new strategy for um, winning the South. And um, this is held to have led to a kind of roughly sevenfold increase in the U.S. prison population from 1970 to 2008. So this enormous growth in the American prison population. It's something that's forgotten by most people is that uh, we started the 70s with a relatively civilized, I don't know about civilized, but a relatively low incarceration rate by today's standards. Uh, and uh, there was even talk, as I recall, of the, the end of incarceration or something like that. Uh, and of course, that all changed rather rapidly. Absolutely. Um, in, in, the, in the 1960s, uh, U.S. incarceration rates were comparable to incarceration rates in other developed countries, uh, and they were falling. And there, there was a, a widespread sense that um, the reform of the prison system would mean a decline, or if not, as you mentioned, kind of almost eradication of the prison in this kind of progressive era. Yet, two decades later, the US is incarcerating people at roughly an order of magnitude above um, levels in comparable uh, developed nations. I'm not entirely clear from your essay that whether you're rejecting that story entirely or just find it incomplete and somewhat misspecified. We're not rejecting it wholeheartedly. Certainly, uh, many of the details, the actual fact of a Republican Southern strategy, uh, the reality of the war on drugs, uh, we would never contest. It is a fact also that, um, that mass incarceration has criminalized black and brown life in America today, that the racial disparity of incarceration is extremely high, and that uh, much of this did actually take the form in terms of the actual mechanisms of changes to uh, law and sentencing policy, um, although prosecutors and prosecutorial um, power also had played a key role in, in the change. Rather, what we, what we want to emphasize that in terms of the problem with this story, well, there's a number of things. Firstly, the focus on the war on drugs has been misleading. Drug prisoners, uh, prisoners arrested for drug offenses, 
uh, a very small portion of the overall prison population in the U.S. It's much more important in the federal system, but the federal system is much smaller than the state system. Yes. So, so another, another issue we have with the standard story is that it tends to focus on the federal system, in part because we know a lot more about it. So as I mentioned, the, the sort of Southern strategy politics is often seen as a federal poli- a set, set of policies. We point to these like big federal crime bills in the 80s and 90s as the key infrastructure to mass incarceration. But of course, vast majority of prisoners in the US today are, are held in state prisons and local jails. Um, the federal prison system is tiny. There is a larger share of drug prisoners in the federal system than, these, as you mentioned, than in these other state and local carceral systems. Um, but even in the federal system, drug prisoners are, 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 are you know, less than the majority. And in the state prisons, and the, therefore in the overall prison population in America, uh, people arrested for drug offenses. It depends how you classify it, but it ranges from a kind of minimum of about 5% of the prison population to a maximum of about 20% of the prison population, which means that the vast majority of prisoners today are not brought into the prison system by policies that could be linked to the war on drugs. The two largest groups in, in the prison are people arrested for violent crimes, and, uh, and people arrested for, for property offenses. Yeah, now that's an important fact uh, which gets overlooked in uh, the Alexander uh, narrative that there was a really sharp increase in the rate of violent crime and that most people who are arrested are arrested for violent crimes or, or, or robbery or not just because they had a bag of weed. Certainly, and, and I think that the, the, for us, the, the kind of reality of the cr- rise of crime in the, in the, in the 1960s, and the beginning in the late 60s and, and, and continuing through the 70s and 80s is something that we, um, we really emphasize against uh, a kind of typical, maybe reluctance on the left and, even, and, and actually even more so in, in liberal work on this, on this phenomena to acknowledge crime. I mean, a, a lot of the kind of story about the war on drugs is, is really about describing a kind of invention of crime, right? The, 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 the law is inventing crime. Uh, therefore, all we need to do is, is change these laws and we can get rid of the problem. We can address the problem of mass incarceration in a very simple way. Uh, you, see, you simply release uh, all these uh, people who shouldn't clearly be in prison anyway. Of course, in our view, most of these people shouldn't be in prison. We don't believe in prison. Uh, we're not supporters of mass incarceration as a as a strategy for addressing the reality of crime. But what we do want to say is that the the reality of crime reflects a reality of, of a broader social crisis that America was facing in the 70s and 80s, and 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 sort of denying that reality by emphasizing uh, the drug war, particularly as this kind of state invention, is in our view uh, to sort of miss the fundamental story. So between 1960 and 1980, uh, we, homicide rates doubled in America, uh, property crime rates tr- increased about threefold, and, and violent crime increased about fivefold. That phenomena, which we think is unmistakable in the evidence, in the historical evidence, has been played down, I think, by many uh, liberal and progressive commentators, in, in part, I think, because they worry that, that sort of acknowledging the reality of crime is to somehow play the blame game, to blame individuals rather than the system. Uh, but we, for us, I think we, we want to push hard back against that tendency. You know, for us, crime is an index of oppression. To deny the reality of crime is, is in a sense, tantamount to denying the reality of the causes of crime, which are, in our view, poverty, inequality, social immobility, and exploitation. And, and the left should not be in the position of denying such things. Uh, before we move on, though, I want to emphasize as somebody old enough to have lived through a lot of that, um, I do recall, you know, even if you get down to the state and local level, there are plenty of reactionary politicians who are using fear of crime to promote a broadly reactionary agenda. They're making the most of it from their own right-wing point of view. So we shouldn't uh, completely dismiss that. It wasn't just Nixon and Reagan. Certainly not. And we wouldn't want to deny that the, the explicitly racist dimension of uh, much of that uh, political grandstanding. But we would uh, emphasize that, uh, that the right does not have a monopoly on law and order politics in the era, of the, specifically in the era of the 70s and 80s. It really became a hege- hegemonic politics in, in the 80s by the mid-90s. Uh, the Democrats under Clinton uh, were, were outdoing the Republicans in their punitiveness, in their emphasis on throwing away the key, on, on locking up as many people as possible. You also have an interesting chart in uh, your uh, paper measuring punitiveness in public attitudes. So, could you talk about what happened with those the public attitudes on uh, punitiveness? Politicians are um, certainly taking advantage of the situation to uh, to drive their own agendas, and certainly Republicans are at the forefront in the in the 70s of driving a law and order agenda, and that does have a dog whistle racist component to it. To understand that, you have to understand that they are themselves, all politicians, not just Republicans, are under pressure from their constituents uh, to address 
a real crisis that's unfolding, particularly in the cities in the early 70s, where levels of interpersonal violence are skyrocketing. What we see in the public opinion data is an increasing uh, demand for something to be done about crime. And that's a demand to be, that you, we find equally growing in white respondents to public opinion surveys and black respondents to public opinion surveys. That demand for law and order policies is filtered through the American political system in one direction only, and that is in a punitive direction. If you ask people uh, what they want to be done about crime, they will uh, list off a number of different suggestions that include both uh, punitive uh, suggestions, you know, sentence, longer sentences, uh, tougher policing, etc., and uh, social policy suggestions, redistribution, jobs, give people something better to do. That combination um, of demands we see uh, across the board among both black and white respondents in public opinion surveys. But it's the, only the punitive demands that we see getting actually taken up. And then we have an argument about why that is, which is the kind of the, the, the core of the paper, really. I'm speaking with John Clegg, co-author of an article in Catalyst on the U.S. incarceration boom. How do you explain the rise in crime from, say, the early to mid-60s into the early 90s? The peak murder year in New York City was 91 or 92, and it's down, down about 90% from that peak. But how do you explain that, that incredible rise, which is really you know, without modern precedent. We, and I have to say that, that our explanation is, is still tentative in some ways, right? We're still working on this problem and, and, and trying to uh, look at new evidence and, and, and build new data sets to try to address this problem. But our best explanation, given the existing literature and the existing uh, data, is that, is that the crime uh, rise beginning in the, in the late 60s is primarily an urban phenomenon. The primary factor there is that is what's sometimes referred to as the urban crisis in the 1960s. So essentially, the cities are being drained of resources as white flight, middle class flight is um, taking tax dollars to the suburbs. At the same time that the second great migration is leading to a, an influx of uh, poor African-Americans from the South. Um, so the, and, the, and, the, and at the same time that progressives are actually winning some social policy reforms at the, at the city level that are designed to address some of these problems, so education, uh, civil rights victories. But it's precisely in those attempts to like use local taxes to address a crisis of poverty and, and concentrated poverty, specifically in African-American neighborhoods in many cases, that you see the tax flight increasing. So the, the attempt by homeowners to avoid the increased taxes by by fleeing to the suburbs, as well as avoiding African-Americans. There's a racist dimension to, the, to white flight, as well as an economic one. The infrastructure of, this, of the city from all kinds of social spending levels, um, education, uh, housing, is being uh, sapped of resources uh, at the same time that um, cities are un undergoing vast transformations and increased levels of segregation. And this is the furnace in which we see uh, a big increase in the, uh, in the, in the homicide rate, for instance, and in other, in other measures of interpersonal violence in the, in the beginning in the late 60s, entering into the 70s, and really continuing up until the, uh, into the early 90s when, he, when it suddenly begins to drop off. And we shouldn't forget that suburbanization and white flight uh, that you speak of uh, was subsidized uh, by uh, public policy for decades. Absolutely. So the federal government... Uh, laid the infrastructure by laying the, the, the highways in the in the 50s. They also subsidized it in many other ways financially and through um, uh, loans to to uh, suburban constituents and, and state uh, governments. And at that same time, also, we saw manufacturing employment moving out of the cities, first to uh, the Sun Belt and then out of the United States. So uh, employment opportunities for people uh, without high um, educational qualifications were disappearing. And absolutely, that's a central part of our argument is that the, the, the lack of employment opportunities specifically for um, uh, lower skilled men uh, beginning in the 60s. Uh, you know, we, we often think of the 60s as a period of prosperity, uh, but that prosperity was very unequally distributed. And if you look at African-American men, you see declining uh, uh, rates of employment already beginning in the 1960s. Why did these underlying economic developments, uh, the disinvestment in cities, you know, the, the suburban flight, the uh, disappearance of jobs in the urban core, why did uh, this kind of systematic deprivation uh, take the form of a rising crime rate? So crime is a, is a complex thing to explain and understand. But if we look specifically at interpersonal violence, we find that it is very correlated with two things. On the one hand, poverty and particularly concentrated poverty. And on the other hand, um, inequality. 
including uh, racial inequality and segregation. And we find that consistently across time, uh, looking at the US today, looking at the US in the 60s. We don't fully understand all the reasons for that. But one important reason is that when people lack uh, opportunities, uh, specifically when they lack opportunities for uh, jobs and stable incomes, then the kind of illegitimate economy, the illicit economy, comes to replace the legitimate one. People have incentives to take risks in finding illicit forms of, of income. And that itself drives a lot of the criminalized behavior that we see rising in the 1960s around the drug trade, around um, illegal gambling and prostitution. But on top of that, the illicit economy has a tendency to uh, resolve disputes through violence because they obviously can't appeal to, to law enforcement. And African-American communities specifically, historically, have been under-policed and have tended to um, not be able to resolve conflicts through the law. And you see increasing levels of interpersonal violence in contexts where legal means of dispute resolution uh, aren't available. The news that uh, African-American communities have historically been under police will shock people who are used to, say, Bloomberg stop-and-frisk policies and constant harassment and, and shootings and by uh, police of unarmed black guys. Um, how were they under-policed? Well, they were un un under-policed by racist uh, courts and police systems up until the 1960s, really. White courts and white police would ignore crime in African-American neighborhoods and specifically crime with African-American victims. James Foreman Jr. has a great account of, of D.C. in the 50s, which looks at the appeals to, to police and to courts uh, to pay attention to problems that they face in terms of high levels of uh, homicide and, and high levels of interpersonal violence. Obviously, you're right, you see a reversal of that tendency in more recent decades with a, an over-policing approach and an overly brutal policing approach. Um, but in the, in the 50s and 60s, there was the brutality, but there was very little uh, attention paid, and specifically People who committed crimes uh, in African-American communities and with African-American victims often went without punishment. Racist courts and police saw it as natural that there were high levels of violence in those communities. And they also didn't, they had no intention to, to protect people from violence in those communities. Now, of course, there's the great uh, counterfactual if we had uh, a generous welfare state and social protections and investment in poor regions uh, that prevented all these geographical disparities from deepening, then the story might have been very different, right? We think of that counterfactual in, in two ways, right? So one, one way to think about the counterfactual is how would the rise of violence in the 1960s and 70s have been avoided? There we look at the fact of suburbanization, the fact of how social policy is organized on a geographical basis in the US to essentially the city, the, 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 the institution that's responsible for dealing with crime uh, is the least well-funded, the least capable of redistributing of any uh, level of the American government. There's not enough wealthy people to tax. You, Chicago can't tax the dot-com billionaires because they don't live there. Uh, and, and, and if the rich are leaving, uh, there's, there's absolutely no way to, um, to fund the kinds of social services that would be necessary to um, just maintain a minimum level of social infrastructure. At the same time, the other counterfactual we look at is, is the counterfactual, well, did they have to respond punitively? And we argue they didn't. There's no necessary reason that the state should um, take this kind of harsh approach, uh, given that there are other options. Uh, and, and if you look at European countries at the same time, which also experienced the rise of crime in the 1960s, you don't see uh, ramping up of the prison population, uh, clamping down in the same way that you do in the US, in part because in, the US, in, in Europe, there are other social policies that are being put in place, redistributive ones. Social democracy is there to... Um, absorb some of that pressure from below. In the US, without a, a plausible social democratic redistributive attempt to address the root causes of crime, popular pressure to do something, anything, about high rates of violence, specifically in deprived urban communities, leads to this one option of punitiveness on the table. We argue that the, the key to re-understanding that is the, is the relative cheapness of punishment when compared to social policy. Yeah, you make the point that, uh, yes, it may cost many times more to incarcerate someone than it does to educate them. But on the other hand, there are very many fewer people who are incarcerated than educated. So if you work out the numbers, uh, it's a lot cheaper to Absolutely. build the carceral state. Today, the U.S. spends a huge amount on prisons, police, and courts. Something like $250 billion, billion are spent on that. So it seems like a lot of money, right? It is objectively a lot of money. It's a lot of money compared to other countries, and $250 billion is a lot. But... 
It's nothing compared to what the U.S. spends already in its cheap and miserly way on social policy, right? So between, depending on how you measure it, the, the budget, the social policy budget is between one and three trillion dollars. And, and that's going to be always going to be the case, if, as you say, because the number of people that come into contact with the prison system is always going to be less than the number of people that come into contact with some kind of social policy. We've um, seen a decline in the crime rate, a very substantial one. The incarceration rate has only come down a little bit. It's turned down, but it's certainly not uh, dropping anywhere as dramatically as, as the crime rate has. Uh, what, what's happened to keep this carceral state running? That's not something we address directly in, in the paper that we've written. Um, but we are, again, very interested in the dynamics that slow down the response on the part of the incarceration system. So as you mentioned, it's not true that incarceration has moved in, op- in an opposite direction to crime. If we, if we look at the change of incarceration, which is the, the kind of better comparison because it's kind of annual flow rather than a stock, then yes, the, the, the rate of admissions into prisons in the U.S. has fallen along with the, the rate of crime. But as you say, it, it, it has certainly not fallen as, as much as it should have done by both historical levels and by any measure of justice. It's un- unquestionable that the, uh, the America still incarcerates at, at vastly higher rates than any, any comparable nation, even with uh, a decline in the, in the crime rate and thus a decline in the incarcerated population. The various factors that play into that, I think we, we don't fully understand all of them. Um, certainly, there are infrastructural persistences in the system that the prison system has its own uh, logic. There is a prison industry that has a vested interest in, in maintaining itself. Although I, I have to say that the, the notion that private prisons are driving this is, I think, uh, a false one. But certainly also um, the, the kinds of reforms that are beginning to be implemented are not having much effect. The kind of incremental reforms that we're beginning to see today, reducing sentences for low-level drug offenders especially, we don't see much of an impact. And that's, as I already explained, I think because those kind of low-level offenders that are relatively easy politically to release, to reduce the sentence length of, they don't form a very large percentage of the prison population. How do we get off this brutal and cruel and, and horrific incarceration train? I think that's a, a, a big and important question that we're only beginning to answer. The contribution that Anana and I want to make to that question is, is to remind us we're living through a period where criticizing and, and pushing back against mass incarceration is relatively easy because crime rates are falling. Um, but crime rates won't continue to fall forever. And at some point, they'll start to rise again. And at, this, at that point, we have to recognize the way to address the enormous disparities, both in the incarceration population and in the, Ameri- and in Mer- in the American society more generally, which drives the disparities in the incarcerated population, requires much more than um, tinkering at the edges of carceral policy. It requires addressing extreme inequalities in American society that drive both crime and incarceration. Yeah, it's not a matter of just criminal justice reform alone. Exactly. Criminal justice reform matters, but it's, the task before us is, in fact, much greater than that. The task before us is addressing the, the underlying uh, weakness of American uh, social democracy, the American labor movement, and addressing its failure to um, provide alternatives to punishment uh, when it comes to the social crisis that we still see in our cities, although it will be in much more concentrated ways than in the 70s and 80s. Here's John Clegg, co-author of the Donner Usmani of the Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration in the fall 2019 issue of Catalyst. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Guns and ammunition 
How is some of police and thieves by the clash? Next, the U.S.-China trade war and progressive responses to it. Where is this trade war coming from? Is it just Trumpian xenophobia, or are there material interests behind it? And what should the progressive response be? Here are Tabita Chow and Jake Werner, co-authors of a paper on the topic published by the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. Tobita Chow is the executive director of Justice is Global, a project aiming to create a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism. Jake Werner is a historian of China, just finishing up a postdoc at the University of Chicago. In the interview, we discussed the Belt and Road Initiative. The BRI is a massive Chinese infrastructure-building effort spanning almost 70 countries around the world. Ports, roads, railroads, electrical grids, and so on. Tobita Chow and Jake Werner. China very much in the news. We remember Trump in a campaign where he say China, China, China all the time, you know, very unattractively. And it's really hard to separate how much real great power competition there is and how much of it is, in Trump's case, just distaste for Chinese people and xenophobia uh, or some toxic mixture of both. How do you read this trade war? Are there actual industrial sectors that are behind it? Does it serve the interests of U.S. capital? Or is it just some sort of nativist politics uh, run amok? Hmm. I think there's a combination of all of the above. Just this uh, Saturday at uh, this symposium on the China question that ha- happened in the Versaloft, it's about uh, how the U.S. left should think about China. There was uh, some very good presentations. One was by uh, Ho Feng Hung, who has written one of the best books about uh, U.S.-China relationship and how it's changing And now he's doing research into uh, tracking how corporate lobby groups, which used to be uh, very defensive of the U.S.-China relationship uh, because it was in their business interests, have within the past decade uh, started to flip from being defensive of China to either being silent on anti-China policies or even being supportive of some of the anti-China policies. And the reason for that has to do with the rise of industries within China that can now um, rival and be competitors with um, U.S. companies. One he picked up was Caterpillar, which uh, used to uh, have very profitable um, enterprises in China. But then following the financial crash and uh, the global recession, and then China's response being this huge economic stimulus, one thing that came out of that were um, state-owned enterprises that could do the work that Caterpillar had done in China. And then this was something that flipped Caterpillar to, uh, to now be hawkish towards China. There are material business interests who see emerging threats within China, and that is part of how this support for this more hawkish approach. But um, there's certainly, aside from that, exaggerated perceptions of the threat that China supposedly poses to the U.S., and now it's a breeding ground for deadly viruses, too. Oh, you know? yes. the Make it oh, much worse. Yeah. There have just been blatantly xenophobic and, and racist articles written about that in the Washington Post. Because Chinese people eat weird things. Yes, know, and, yes, um, that's right. And white people would never eat weird things. Part of what's going on here is that the one of the roles of the state is to sort of see the larger picture and look down further than kind of immediate profitability. So parts of the state that are seeing a long-term challenge from China emerging and want to confront it sooner than the businesses themselves are perceiving the threat to their own profitability. And ultimately that comes out of the kind of post-2008 landscape of the global economy that China is moving into these very high-value sectors, like tech, advanced tech. It's no longer this low-wage sweatshop right. that it was. I'm, I mean, there's a, there ago. still is a huge part of the Chinese economy that that is that, but increasingly now there's They're climbing up the value Chinese changes, corporations that can compete in these places that previously have really been the preserve of American multinationals. And at the same time, that kind of rapid growth in the global economy has really shrunk down after the kind of debt-fueled consumption consumption is no longer viable after 2008, parts of the state are responding to this and, and starting to take proactive action that even some of the companies that they're acting on behalf of may not. And what about the military political angle? I mean, China is increasingly seen as a rival in that sphere, not just economically, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, that that's been a, the sort of national security part of the state. has This has been on their radar for 20, 30 years. You can go back and look at reports from, from the early aughts where they're saying exactly the same things that they're saying now. Uh, the difference is that the way in which cha- China might challenge U.S. hegemony in Asia and the Pacific 
is now much more real. It's much more concrete because the Chinese military has uh, developed with incredible speed. It still would probably not win a war with the United States, but it, it is. That, that's not thinkable. It, it, well, I, I <laughs> it's, it's I becoming know, thinkable, any, I think, sadly. But what are Chinese intentions? Do they have global imperial ambitions? Is that inevitable given their economic growth? No, it's not inevitable. It is possible. It is not currently their intentions. Their intentions right now are, um, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party wants to stay in power. Part of what it needs to do in order to accomplish that is to maintain popular legitimacy so that a big part of that is maintaining economic growth and um, upward mobility for the population. So the health of the economy is crucial to that. So that's their big, one big priority. Um, they are also trying to build a regional military powers like in the South China Sea. But in terms of this idea that China is trying to take over the world, there's no actual evidence of that. The Belt and Road Initiative, though, is very ambitious and globe-spanning. Uh, what do you make of that? So the Belt and Road Initiative is primarily an effort to overcome contradictions within the Chinese economy. Coming out of the economic crisis, there was a huge stimulus. They built a, the world's largest high-speed rail network out of nothing in a matter of years. Yeah, I don't think you could build a mile of subway in New York City. In the time. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've seen that. We've seen miles. that, right? <laughs> So you don't see the, the Belt and Road, Road Initiative as some sort of skeleton of a global imperial stretch, or is it just uh, a way to pour concrete? I think right now it mainly is a way to pour concrete. It's a way to export surplus capital and give production industries in China an outlet for surplus production. But I also think very clearly it has the potential to become that if the kinds of constraints in the global economy persist. If the tension between the U.S. and China continues to escalate, Eventually, if the global economy doesn't open up and create space for both of them, then there will be increasingly competition between the two to dominate sources of raw materials, markets, uh, places to invest. And under that kind of great power conflict, then you would see China push into that sort of imperialist role. Well, they're very busy building ports and doing things in poorer countries. Mm -hmm. Yes. Spending loans. Yeah. Uh, so they are developing this financial and political infrastructure that is starting to seem like some kind of rivalry to the American tentacles. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's actually quite a bit more robust in a lot of ways. The, the kind of capital that the U.S., like development capital that the U.S. is extending to poor countries pales in comparison to what China is offering at this point. But there's also a question of the sustainability, given the fact that a lot of this is commercial loans at rates that are unsustainable unless some huge growth takeoff happens. And the, the Belt and Road Initiative doesn't have that vision for development on its own. And it's an open question whether the countries that are, lend are borrowing have the state capacity or the vision to turn that into a developmental takeoff. So there's a lot of kind of rocky events on the way. Do they have anything like an imperial brain trust like the U.S. had in the 30s and 40s that that after the war, we're going to take over the British Empire, and they had plans to do that. Is there anything comparable going on in China at this point? There are some sort of vague visions of this as kind of a global development program that could provide ideological justification for that. But the that level of expertise in other countries is really, it's sort of starting to emerge in response to the presence that China is starting to develop in other countries. But right now, that level of kind of expertise in foreign relations or in the domestic affairs of other countries is still pretty underdeveloped. Chinese growth is slowing. Uh, we're seeing the slowest growth they've seen in like 30 years, right? And when growth slows, that's when financial problems become manifest. People sometimes get the sequence of that wrong. It's when growth slows that the financial problems uh, yeah. begin. Everybody's been waiting for China to blow up financially uh, for a couple of decades now. Is it really this time, really, it, it for real? There is a lot of vulnerability. There is a, the extent of indebtedness, just corporate indebtedness and household indebtedness in the Chinese economy has increased at an extraordinary rate. Total indebtedness in the economy has doubled to about three times GDP in the course of 10 years, which is unprecedented for an economy of that size. And so that's extremely yeah, that's dangerous, extremely, extremely, US, extremely dangerous, given that it's not, and it's not isolated in particular sectors. It's households. Before 2008, households had almost no debt. Now households are highly indebted. There's a lot of mortgage debt. Uh, corporations are highly indebted and increasingly like local 
particularly after 2008, the, the response to 2008, uh, local governments became highly indebted as well. So there's all of these kind of un- non-performing loans in the system. And the, the government is unusually capable of, it has the levers and it has the expertise to work on this in a way that is not the case of countries where the government is less involved in the economy. They're focused on the problem. That's, the main, that's been the main policy issue. Preventing growth from plummeting to zero and dealing with the debt problem have been the two main economic issues the government has been dealing with over the last five years. And I got to say, I mean, it's often very brutal, but the, the skill with which uh, the Chinese leadership has run the economy over the last several decades is very, very impressive. How firm is their grip and power? As the economy develops, does it take on a life of its own that gets beyond the power of the state to shape it, or uh, are they still pretty much in charge? There's a couple of things I can think to say about that. One is that um, support for the, the Chinese Communist Party is very high. Popular support is, is overall very high. So they have no legitimation problems? The biggest legitimation problem uh, recently has been corruption and the level of economic inequality in the country, and Xi Jinping has taken pretty unexpectedly tough measures on that. There was a gigantic anti-corruption campaign uh, in his first term. Some of that is about getting rid of rivals, too, isn't it? Oh, no question. It's used to do that. But the scope of this was, there's no precedent for the scope and, and the intensity. popularity yes. as well. That is by far the most popular thing that he's done. And it really terrified local officials. Like, there's been anti-corruption campaigns for the past 30 years, periodically, a few people get knocked down, and then people kind of shrug it off. This time, people are not shrugging it off. They stopped having these banquets. All of these sort of elaborate forms of corruption really shut down afterwards. And people, the people in the local and provincial level government were terrified. So it, it was a really decisive kind of action against that, and that really built out a sense of legitimacy. The sort of open question is what he does with that and how he wants to reshape the way the economy works and the way that the state and society interact with each other. And that still is an open question. I'm not sure that he even knows what he wants to do. So what kind of impact economically and politically is the trade war having in China? Perhaps it's my anti-Americanism speaking, but uh, it seems like the Chinese have the upper hand in this one. But uh, do they? Uh, How vulnerable are they to this trade war? It doesn't seem to have hurt the Chinese economy terribly. It It did move trade around somewhat. Chinese exports to the United States did drop quite a bit by about $100 billion. Growth is slowing in China, but this is, has been the plan for a number of years. So this is not, you know, when Trump talks about this, he's saying Chinese growth is plummeting. First of all, it's not plummeting. Second of all, it is still at 6%, which is better, far better than everything in the world happens economy. because Trump wants it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> in 2008, when the U.S. export market just dried up all of a sudden. That was a really serious danger to China. Today, the economy is much more varied. It's much less dependent on the U.S. export market. They constantly have been talking about shifting away from an export model towards more domestic yeah. growth. And yeah. that, that's, that's been underway, right? Yeah. It's not just talk. I guess the ways in which the economy is vulnerable are less to do with sort of overall output and more to do with specialized access to like high-tech manufacturers that the U.S. government is increasingly cutting off access to, like trying to prevent exports of U.S. microchips, for example. We saw this with the Chinese company ZTE, where the U.S. government briefly imposed sanctions that cut it off from the supply of U.S. produced microchips, and it just shut down. It would have gone bankrupt if that set of sanctions had persisted much past when it did. In fact, one of the things that came out in the Bolton manuscript is that he wanted to shut this company down. And Bolton and the other, sort of the rest of the adults in the room, wanted to shut down ZTE. And Trump reversed it because of, you know, his sort of understanding. And what was driving Bolton? National security or economic power or what? He is part of an emerging new, it's like great power conflict coalition that China is now in a position to threaten U.S hegemony, at least in Asia, not globally, but in Asia. And we need to act now before it's too late. We have some leverage here because the Chinese economy still is really dependent on certain high-tech exports from U.S. producers, and we can sort of strangle them now. And if we don't, then China's going to develop an indigenous capacity to produce these. That'll be too late. Bolton is this extreme military hawk and national security, like nationalist. And um, for that crew... The tech industry is basically an arm of the military-industrial complex. And the superiority of the U.S. tech industry is seen as essential to U.S. military superiority. 
So the rise of the Chinese tech industry is therefore translates into a threat to U.S. military superiority. A lot of the uh, anti-China sentiment within the U.S. ruling class is around the tech industry, and it's and it's connected. It's not just about the profitability of the tech industry. It's also connected to this understanding that tech is part of part of military power. Is that present in both parties, or is it more oh, Republican yes. thing? Yes. So they're Democrats who have a similar view. Of- yes. If you read Chuck Schumer's statements or his tweets about about China, you see very much the same concerns. He has criticized Trump for being too soft on China out of these considerations, yeah. That's the voice of Tobita Chow. I'm speaking with him and Jake Werner, authors of a paper on the U.S.-China trade war. Let's turn to some kind of policy response, progressive policy response. Certainly a lot of U.S. labor people have viewed China as just nothing but a a low-wage rival and uh, therefore um, viewed it with considerable hostility. That is not a satisfying point of view to those of us who like to be progressive internationalists. So how do we think about China in that regard? Now, as to start with, it's a low-wage competitor, less so than it used to be, but it still is to some degree. How should we think and talk about it? I think in general, the internationalist approach to uh, workers throughout the global south, so not just internationalist, but also the most strategic long-term approach, is to um, get out of this mindset of seeing them as competitors and as doomed to be competitors and to think about, well, how can we turn them from competitors into like potential comrades? Because we are in a global labor market where we are all stuck in this global race to the bottom where workers in different countries are pitted against each other for like who will work for the lowest wages and in the worst working conditions. And the only viable long-term solution to that is to um, lift everyone up. So the interests of workers in China or anywhere in the global south are tied to the long-term prospects of the working class in the U.S. So that's the approach that we have to have, that we're in this global race to the bottom, this is a shared problem, and we need to come together around shared solutions. That's easier said than done, but there are steps we can take to work towards that, and that should be the strategy. What kind of steps are you thinking of? Specifically around the trade war, the most obvious labor critique of the trade war is that uh, labor standards have been completely absent from the trade negotiations. You know, the Trump administration claims credit for bringing uh, labor rights issues into the NAFTA renegotiation, but on the side of the negotiations with China, there hasn't been even an attempt to bring that that issue into the negotiations um, because that's just not what the China hawks care about at all. And the trade war hasn't done anything to stimulate employment, despite claims to the contrary. Well, quite, quite the opposite. Quite yeah. the opposite, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's damaged the industries, uh, manufacturing industries, but also uh, agriculture. It hasn't worked in its own terms. Well, and the only reason that it hasn't damaged the U.S. economy more is because the U.S. government is kind of flooding the U.S. economy with tax breaks and with uh, subsidies to the farmers who got hit. It could have had a worse impact. Employment in manufacturing is down. Uh, a lot of farmers are going bankrupt. So there's been, there's been real cost to the trade war. We went into a manufacturing recession. The steel industry, which is supposed to be the big beneficiary, has seen steel prices uh, go down um, because the manufacturing industry as a whole is in such bad shape. Yeah, and if you make washing machines or cars, you're not going to like any tariffs that raise the price of steel. Right. Any approach to this question, the question of trade that relies on framework of zero-sum competition, that if the Chinese people get wealthier, then we will get poorer or vice versa, that is not just doomed to failure, but actually is going to sort of feed nationalism that's uh, moving in a very scary direction. Everyone's like a Ricardo free trader in theory, but uh, in practice, they're all mercantilists. Yes, yes. What about uh, things like human rights? China is not a a star in that area, not that the U.S. is either, but but on the other hand, like if you start pushing that, it just starts smelling like regime change stuff, and it's like old Cold War crap being revived. So how do you thread that one? Yeah, I've been very troubled by how uh, people will bring in human rights arguments around the trade war. The trade war is good. Uh, you know, China's doing all these bad things economically. Also look at the human rights abuses. But it's like a change in topic. There's never any attempt to then tell the story of how attacking China's economy is going to pay off for better human rights protections for Uyghurs. Yeah, economic or, squeezes don't bring out the best in people. Right, right. And I think what we have seen, in fact, is that, you know, you asked them um, what's been the impact of the trade war on the Chinese economy, and it hasn't ruined the Chinese economy the way that Trump tries to brag about. 
But what it has done is create an increased sense of threat in the Chinese ruling class. They're like, okay, the U.S. is attacking us.、Um, the future is more uncertain. We have to worry much more about the, the stability of the economy. And from the perspective of the Chinese state, what that means is, okay, so how do we deal with that? One way is we need to increase our efforts to maintain social control, which translates into crackdowns and violations of human rights. So I think it's not coincidental that、um, as the trade war escalated in general, like U.S.-China tensions escalated, we've seen also an escalation in crackdowns on activists of all kinds within mainland China. This is also fed into the crackdown on the protests in Hong Kong. What about Hong Kong? That's where the human rights thing gets a little problematic. One wants people in Hong Kong to have rights of free speech and and self determination. On the other hand,、um, it is also a weapon to undermine China. Again, how do we balance these these competing uh, uh, needs or、uh, desires? The first thing is to just is to not make excuses about the Chinese record, and to recognize that the Chinese human rights record has gotten much much worse, particularly in the last five years.、Um, because prior to that, the decade prior to that, the, the aughts and maybe the first couple of years of the tens, there was a real opening in political space for people to do、uh, labor activism, to do feminist activism. There was a greater toleration for ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs in, Xin, in Xinjiang. There was greater space to sort of explore the differences of identity, the growth of civil society groups.、Mm-hmm. So it was there was there was still. I, I don't want to oversell this. Like this was not a massive democratization or anything, but the space was opening up, and then it turned around. What happened to change it? Well, I think it's important to put this in the in the global context. It wasn't just China where this changed. It. Changed in actually in the United States, as we know that right wing politics became more virulent in this same period. It changed in a place like Turkey. It changed in a place like India. It changed in Europe with all this anti immigrant politics. It changed everywhere in the world. And the way that I understand this is that one of the reactions to the new social landscape after two thousand eight was an invigoration of these anti liberal currents around the world. We need to address this question not. In terms of how are we going to get China to change its record, but rather how can we address this problem, which is the rise of reactionary politics, reactionary nationalist, xenophobic politics, is a global problem, and we need to address it at the level of、uh, the global system rather than sort of isolating China, which which actually just gives encouragement to the national, the reactionary currents in the United States. So, what can the U.S. left do for this sort of thing? The U.S. left has very little、uh, leverage over our own government, but、uh, even less over the Chinese government. So, how much can we do other than、um, you know, posting strenuously on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the first and most important step. <laughs> I think a really important first step is to just pause and deal in some analysis to understand what it is that we're confronting. And there's way, way, way too little. Time and energy spent among people who rightly care about these issues in figuring out what are the motivations on the part of the Chinese state and what are the considerations that are that are driving them towards these crackdowns. Because if you don't know why it's happening, then what hope do you have of of changing it? Instead of that, sort of the the, the default approach is is very moralistic. Like this is something that's happening that's evil, so we need to attack the evil doers. Which I think, in in the case of of China's human rights abuses, is just not going to be an effective approach. So, for example, in the case of Hong Kong, like we need to understand、uh, the Chinese state's deep concerns about、um, social control and social stability, not just on Hong Kong, but throughout all of the cities where there are like very similar problems to what is happening. In Hong Kong, of inequality and rising housing prices, and、um, finding a good jobs is becoming harder and harder. That sounds familiar, right? Yeah, it's not again, just, not just a China、yeah. or Hong Kong issue. It's a global issue. Yeah, yeah.、Um, and so, when the protest movement is is springing up within Hong Kong, you know, one of the concerns of the Chinese government is like, oh, we can't let there be a successful protest movement in Hong Kong. Because one fear is that that could lead that could become a precedent for cities in mainland China. So there's two things we got to do. First, we have to crush the protest movement and make sure that's not successful. The second is、um, we need to、um, use as much as possible、uh, their their chief ideological tool to maintain social control, which is Chinese nationalism. And、um, they 
consistently uh, attack activists, anyone they see as problematic, is sort of foreign agents um, undermining China from within, so that they. But anti-Chinese sentiment coming from the U.S. or elsewhere is only going to fuel that kind of national. That's correct. That's correct. It is much easier for the Chinese government to tell the Chinese population that um, you know these activists or protests or whatever are are agents of the West who's trying to destroy us when the Western governments are in fact saying we need to destroy China, <laughs> right? then that just makes it all that more plausible. And finally, uh, how does this uh, iteration of anti-Chinese sentiment in the U.S. compare? We've had many episodes in the past. How is this like or unlike previous episodes? It's not yet, I think, not yet as virulent as previous kind of yellow peril or red Chinese scares in the Cold War, for, for instance. But I, I, do, I do worry about the possibility of it becoming much worse. Those are Tabita Chow and Jake Werner, co-authors of a paper on the U.S.-China trade war published by the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Domenico Scarlatti's Sonata K-126, performed by Scott Ross. Till next week, bye. <laughs>